0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Analysis Episode 2, another conversation with the writer and journalist Chris Higgins. We start up talking about the recent sad demise of the magazine, a project Chris was heavily involved in, but then we spend most of the episode talking about the early online services and what it was like to go online before online meant the web. If you're from this era, get yourself ready, I guess, for a nostalgia bomb. Hope you enjoy it. I wanted to. um, I actually wanted to start off by asking you about um, the magazine. I I was wondering if you had any sort of uh, inside scoop on sadly the the demise of the magazine. Yeah. So maybe a little
1: background for listeners: the magazine uh, got a ton of press about two years ago for being the first subcompact publishing platform, uh, web-based, app-based magazine. And I made an early bet where i said i'm going to be (laughs) i want to be the guy who writes the most stories for the magazine the most long-form uh stuff for this new world and i might have that distinction right now or chris stoke walker who's a guy in uh great britain uh, he might have it i'm not sure which one of us is currently up anyway the magazine is shutting down in december they're um ceasing publication of new issues so old issues are still available uh there may be, be Ebooks or quarterlies or something smaller, but their bi-weeklies are going away. Um, I'm gonna write more about this, and so I'm trying to save some of the powder for that. But I sure sure. You know, I I did know this was coming um, a little bit, and I. <laughs> it sounds labored. I I guess that the the when it started. Uh Marco said this is an experiment and when Glenn bought it Glenn said this is an experiment and as somebody who makes his living as a freelance writer you make a lot of you take a lot of chances and so going into this thing I said this is an experiment I will uh just you know try to hope that this turns into a really big magazine now the upside of an experiment in a magazine that works is you know I guess it makes more money and it gets a lot more readers and you end up being famous or something. But the downside in a magazine that doesn't that you know eventually folds is you got paid well for what you did, you learned a lot, you built relationships with people who worked there and you made great work. So the downside of the experiment is actually very positive and that's what's happening right now is we're saying okay, well, I got paid really well all the
0: all the way down. Um, yeah, I had I had read yeah. that they had paid out over a million dollars or or more to the writers, so they were I heard always it was half really a million. okay. But they they were always really generous with the writers, right?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I mean the rate, you know, the rate to do a magazine story was published at eight hundred bucks for a regular feature, plus uh, photo fees, and that changed a little bit later. If they you know they said um, things that are personal essays that don't involve reporting are a little bit less. I think they were five hundred or something. Um, but they, for one thing, publishing rates is something magazines don't do. And so for them to do that was bold and I think helped out everybody in the equation. So people who might want to be writers or might wonder, what are the economics of this? So they looked at it and said, okay, well, this guy is running, at the time, five full-length features costing 800 bucks every two weeks. So you can do the math. You can literally just multiply those things, figure out he's got an, uh, an assistant editor in himself um and then say okay what must this cost him to run therefore what must he have to make it work so the subscriber numbers just went down and it wasn't sustainable and the impressive thing i think honestly in addition to everybody got paid everybody got paid well everybody got paid out in the open oh my god everything was independently owned the ownership terms for the writers are awesome so i I still own all my work and i'm free to republish it i think 60 days after publication So if I want to take all that stuff and collect it and run it in an anthology of stuff no one wants to read by Chris Higgins, I can do that. Um, In addition to all of that, um, he kept an escrow account where people who had long-term subscriptions, like, you know, uh, annual subscriptions, he has that money. And he's only been doling it out to the business as the time occurs. So he's doing proper business practices, even though he's one guy. And he's going to give that money back to people. And I'm like – this is in many ways a business success story about people who decided not to try a different business model. You know, like he said, I'm going to be purely subscriber driven and not take ads and not try other experiments. And he tried that for a couple of years, and it worked out okay. And it has becoming it's becoming less sustainable. Sustainable, so he's just walking away from it. Um, but I yeah. think I'm I'm fine with that. And it's not like my work disappears into the ether either. you know i I got a lot better at writing a certain kind of story in that time, and I developed a lot of relationships I wouldn't have otherwise. And so I think uh, you know I you know big hugs for everybody I met and who were, who was involved in this thing, but also these writers are all continuing to work elsewhere, so right. we're well all it's pick it's up. still a
0: sad thing because everybody wants to see one of these things actually happen you know what i mean yeah um i this maybe could lead us into into conversation because i still i actually asked somebody in an interview uh that i did this month about you know why why hasn't uh magazine reading on the ipad happened you know because like (laughs) when the (laughs) ipad came out the one clearly obvious thing that you could do with it would be to get all of your magazines just downloaded instantaneously. And, I mean, I, I, it's, it's not like everybody that publishes a magazine has stopped uh, making iPad uh, apps and things like that. But it, I don't really know that I get the sense that that has taken off like I would have thought it would. And I just, I'm just, I wonder why. Do you, have, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, it seems so obvious to me. I do, but I think first I have a question. Do you read magazines
1: on your iPad?
0: Yes. Yes, I do. Um, but that my behavior is the same as the, you know, you've got that pile of magazines next to your uh, couch that you swear you're going to get to, you know, <laughs> yeah. eight New Yorkers back. Oh, I, I really wanted to read that one article. Um, but I still, I still download them. And if, if every one of the magazines I subscribe to gave me the option of not having it mailed to me, I would definitely take that just to cut down on the pile next to the couch. But the truth is, if you're asking, do I every day... Uh, go on the iPad and read uh, a, a, a magazine issue. The answer, obviously, sadly, is no. So right. that's the problem. Well, see, I think that's the problem with me, too. And I'm
1: I'm guessing it's true of most people. Um, I got an iPad mini Retina, which I think you have the same general machine. Right, right. And I thought <laughs> I had these pictures of myself sitting there on the couch and just reading like a grown-up on my iPad. Like, this is mainly a reading device, honey. I'm not going to... You know, not going to watch Netflix on it and play games. I mean, maybe from time to time, but I have not read a whole lot on it. I read a lot more on my computer.
0: Um, I read pages and stuff. You know, know, yeah. I I I use the iPad on a daily basis for two things: uh, crosswords and uh, Twitter. Yeah. Because throughout the day, that's generally my favorite way to you know go to the Twitter stream and see what's new and be, and I I prefer it on the iPad because if there is an article that I I get most of the articles I read from my Twitter stream so if there's one that pops through that I'm like oh I got to read that's when I'll read it so for example Business Week this week has um the great article on oh crap I I had it on the top of my tip of my tongue um anyway I I immediately read it when I saw it in Twitter and then it showed up on my doorstep 2 days later you know
1: yeah yeah well, that's actually one of my other key thoughts is, is, first of all, I think the behavior of just sitting down to say, <clears throat> I'm going to have a destination reading event with my iPad. I don't think that's happening. I also don't think the iPad is finding its way into uh, other places where you would read, for for instance, on the toilet. Um, and so I, there's a kind of use model problem. I think also that exact thing of finding the article like, or the content coming to you somehow else whether it's via somebody's great email newsletter or you saw it on Twitter. I read a lot more from those sources. And one of the things I think is missing from kind of like the iPad magazine concept, and I don't know how to solve this, which is probably why it's still a problem, is I have that same backlog problem even with magazines that I love, like the magazine. Like there are probably uh, 15 issues in which I've read one article because I knew the person. You know, so – I know that there's other stuff in those other articles that I would like, but I have not invested the time to skim through them and try them out, and I would like it if somehow the computer or the social graph or something, like Medium, uh, were to say, we're pretty
0: sure you're going to like this, even Mm -hmm. though you don't know it, and
1: so that kind of discovery thing would be really helpful to me,
0: and I think I I could do that. You know, it's almost, it, it just occurred to me by you saying that, it's almost the inverse of how I deal with the TV. I never watch anything live. I always, right. okay, when I'm ready, I'm going to sit down and all right, now I'll do Homeland or now I'll do, you know, Orange is the New Black. So either, you know, Netflix or, or DVR stuff. But when an article comes out, it's the inverse for me. So so the article that I was excited about was um, the, a cover story on, on the Weather Channel and how even more than, like, kind of BuzzFeed. Like, they are so much about these crazy, clicky stories and stuff like that and, and how successful <laughs> they are at it. Yeah. But so when I saw that, because I've been kind of obsessed with the Weather Channel lately because of research and stuff for this project, uh, I wanted to read it right away. So it's like it's the inverse of how I deal with television where, okay, now I'm going to sit down and watch some television, so I want it saved and ready for me when I'm ready to do that. But when an article pops up, I want to read it right now. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, I should also say I
1: use the Safari reading list thing, which is a read later service. They're all kind of similar.
0: Right. I use Instapaper.
1: <clears throat> and I, I still have an Instapaper account, but in both cases, what happened was that was my guilt button. Like if I'd left that tab open for a couple of days, I would throw it in the read later queue and almost never read anything later. I mean, occasionally, but I have this problem of, I don't know how many hundreds of things are in those read later lists that I, could functionally never go through unless i were on like a plane to nowhere <laughs> that just went on forever but i do on the plane like that's that's one
0: use case where i'm like oh right, yeah oh I yeah me too. this you know
1: three yeah hours.
0: yeah yeah i i the joke went around everyone made when they allowed you to keep your devices on uh during takeoff i'm like well there goes the last time i'll ever buy a magazine again <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah totally well okay so let's let's get get around to the topic on hand um we uh we we made we made some notes this time, so hopefully we, we know that some of you were less than pleased with our first attempt to do this. And we want it to be a rambling thing, but we also this time are are gonna try to be a little more focused. So uh Chris, I think you wanted to to talk today a lot about stuff in what we would call chapter three. So about the AOL and the CompuServe era, right? Yeah, the rise
1: of the The thing you dialed into and paid money for uh i think the first thing i want to talk about is you mentioned in uh in the beginning of this the idea that to a uh, sort of a younger reader it would be unclear what one would do with a computer before you could go online before there was an online that you had access to
0: right i think we we touched on that last time too and the 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 thing that always pops up and i've written a little bit about this is cuz i one of the times i actually have gone to the microfiche in the library to look up mm-hmm. things i ended up just going down a rabbit hole looking at old ads which i think a lot of people do when you look at old yeah. magazines but yeah <clears throat> old computer ads almost invariably they sell them as you can you can keep your recipes in this
1: yes well trying to justify a database has been one of those advertising challenges of the ages. Like what are things people have lists right. of well? I guess a home inventory, you know, or your taxes. Yeah. Those are also, you know, so things like that come
0: all out. these ads are you know, you can have this and then and then you can have two thousand recipes stored for whenever you need them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unlike, but, say, a book, right?
0: Right. But so <laughs> the point that you're making is, you know, clearly when we're looking back in history, the main utility of any computer is to connect it to another computer, and hopefully all the computers in the world, because then that's what's really useful, right?
1: Well, I, I, that, would, I would take issue with that as a concept, but it is now, for sure. It is clear now. But I do think there was a period of utility. Like, I don't think the 70s and 80s and early 90s were just a barren desert where you did nothing with computers. Or they see, not.
0: I'm not sure, because, okay, what would... What we want to get into is, what did we actually use the computer for? We got our first computer in 1986. So I think I didn't get online, and getting online meant getting on Prodigy till 1990, because I remember it was around Gulf War One. Mm-hmm. So for those four years, what did I do with the computer? And aside from printing up dot matrix banners for parties,
1: it was basically <laughs> playing
0: computer games. And that was it. Yeah. <clears throat> but, well, I mean, what what would be the other utility for a family to have a computer in their den in 1986? Well, I wouldn't
1: discount the utility of games. I mean, games are, like, a primary use case of all computing devices. Phones, iPads. Even now. Even if they're not connected games. Even if it's like, I'm playing my little dots that plug into each other and give me candy. Right? I mean, games are a thing. And I, I think that's the main thing I would say. Like, yeah, sure. Like word processing is important and I did homework and stuff on my computer, but I played a lot of computer games, even when we didn't have a graphical display, you know, like I got early computers in, we had a TI 99 in probably 83, somewhere in there. And we would, we got this thing called TI user magazine uh, where you would have these uh, programs that were typed out in like a monospaced font and you would type them in to your computer and you'd get like a Pac-Man clone. I remember that my brother did a bunch of typing on that one. And I tried, but I was just not accurate enough to transcribe all this stuff. And you would type in page after page of basic code and get a game out of it. Um, but like, yeah, we played games, we programmed, and we did basic word processing for homework reasons. We wrote letters from time to time. Um, I know even into high school when uh, you know, I had a network connection, via the phone, I would still write letters on a computer. Like that was a primary thing that I would do. And then I'd print them out and put them in an envelope and mail them, which sounds insane now, but I had friends who didn't have email. So that's what you did. Even as late as, you know, 96, 97, that was not uncommon for me to do.
0: I guess, I guess it's just fascinating to me that by the late eighties, you could have (coughs) an entire multi-trillion dollar industry computer industry and that that was thriving and yet the killer application for the machine hadn't even arrived yet yeah
1: no it is remarkable i mean i think there i do want to say though desktop publishing was also certainly a thing and so there was a work purpose there Uh, but if you talk if you're talking about home use yeah and there were probably better ways to play games you know like get a nintendo or an atari or whatever Right, right Um, well, certainly a less expensive way to play pretty good games, uh, in those, in those days. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the weird fact was the utility of the computer went way up when you hooked it up to any other computer in all these fields. So even in DTP, if you had, you know, your Mac lab and they all talked over Apple talk to a laser printer, that was actually kind of useful. Um, and yeah, as somebody who worked on high school newspaper in exactly that scenario, we had non-internet-connected computers. They were just these islands that could only talk to each other and right, a printer. And printer right. We did a lot of printing, and we would, we would paste up the newspaper. We'd put it over through a, um, a wax machine and cut it up with scissors and then put the columns onto big pieces of paper and run those over to the printer. That was like one of the main things we did uh, through all four years of high school and but this was see, 92 to 96. So
0: right, so as I touched on in that chapter that is how the early online services sold themselves, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Is that they went to the PC manufacturers and they said, "All right, here, bundle this with it. We'll give you a kickback because it's a it's a subscription model." Mhm. So the PC makers that are already struggling with thin margins are like fantastic and and the PC maker can now say to someone, say, bringing home their first ever computer, well, here's something amazing that you can do with it. And so that's very, very much how Prodigy, CompuServe, all these all these services basically got their start, is, is trying to explain to people, we know you can't conceive right now of exactly what this means, but we promise that once you take this machine home, this is the thing that you can do with it, basically.
1: Yeah, and I I also wonder if an online service was simply something that was harder to pirate than other software because you had to subscribe and sign in. And sure, you could get ways. There were ways to to fake a login, but in general, I think people actually, this wasn't a revenue stream that actually worked. Um, So clearly from a business perspective, that was successful for people. Uh, But from a user perspective, I think there was also this idea that you were opening up uh, the world, like the literal world. And so we would talk about words like cyberspace that are really dumb and dated, but it did feel like this other frontier. (laughs) And for instance, I remember explaining to my grandmother what I did all day when I was on CompuServe and I'd explain the concept of email. And I would say it's like writing a letter, except I type it on the computer and I don't have to pay for it really. And she just sort of, you know, glazed over said, "Well, why don't you just write a letter?" Much like Jan Brandt said, "Well, why wouldn't people?" You know, the the worry was people would say, "Well, why wouldn't you just pick up the phone if you wanted to?" IM someone, right? And the that the the transformative thing is once you don't have to pick up the phone or you don't have to go to the post office or whatever, you do that thing a lot more, <laughs> and you mm-hmm. wouldn't. You know, there's just this, this human habit thing that once you can do that, you do do that.
0: Um, yeah, I, in that Jan Brandt interview, I thought it was it was dead on how. they had determined that it was the dad, it was the father that would be the impetus inside the family to be like, you know what? The family needs a computer and they would (laughs) always justify it by, well, the kids can use it for homework and, and schooling and research and and all this stuff. But really it was the dad that wanted to tinker with, with the computer. Like I, I I thought that was brilliant that they determined that through their research because my feeling was that that's 100% the way it was, at least in the 80s. That's the way it was in my family. I think there's a canonical 80s, 90s
1: dad who would, who would bring this thing in and be like, Gather around, family. Uh, in my case, we each got our own floppy, our, our own five and a quarter inch, we had to write <laughs> our name on it. And be like, You can put all of your documents on here, and we'll put our programs on the hard drive that I just got. Uh, and it was, that was. You know, my father worked around computers, but I think he just wanted one in the house. And yeah, he could justify it with the fact that we could use the encyclopedia and type up our reports that we almost never had to write.
0: But exactly yeah. right. I, I remember printing up reports for school and stuff like that. But you know, when you're in fifth and sixth grade, how many how how often does that actually happen? You
1: know? Yeah, it's it's a it's an event. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But you know, there's a there's a related question I was wondering, which is. You get into, like in Chapter 2 and Chapter 3, and you have this thesis, I think, that clearly the web browser is the killer app. Um, or it's a killer app. Because, you know, there have been killer apps throughout. And and, and I think, historically, it was, you know, VisiCalc or 123 was the killer app of the PC for a certain segment, right? I can I can do my computer math and get really actionable, useful business stuff out of it. But one thing I really wonder is right before the browser was the killer app like what was the killer app and I'm I'm led to think perhaps it was the online service itself the AOL the prodigy the you right. know, the CompuServe thing um, that that itself was a, a whole class of new apps that just came into being you know in the mid to late 80s and early 90s
0: I would I would maybe simplify it a bit by saying, the catch-all word would be chat. Now, chat, as we would know it in its modern sense, didn't exist then. And it, it, it's, its proto-forms were the AOL chat rooms, which, again, would have been later in the 90s. But chat, by chat, I mean the message boards. Just the ability to dial in somewhere, and wherever you're going, whether it's playing a, a, a game online or going to a message board or whatever... What you're doing is you're interacting with other people. So that's the killer app. But but then that's what I'm saying also, is that's the killer app of computing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, so
0: it's kind of cycling back to that same thing that I'm pondering, like how could computers have been here? But I mean, definitely, uh, as as I made the point in the chapter, it was chat and that focus on interactivity that allowed AOL to eventually be the dominant online service because they identified exactly that, that... Really what you wanted to do was just allow people to get online and talk to each other. Um, if that be that message boards, be that email. So truly the killer app before the web browser is the web browser just makes that a little more sophisticated because then it allows people to produce content that other people can interact with. Um, but For, I think, anybody that was on a CompuServe, on an AOL from, let's say, 1989 to 1994, 95, the thing that you did was you just went somewhere where there were other people, and you interacted with them, and you jumped into the the streams that were already happening. So you didn't need graphics, you didn't need content, you just needed a place where people could type a line, and then someone else types a line, and that's it, you know? I agree, and I, I think that
1: there is... There's one other flavor to it, which is the ability to self-identify an interest to say, I am a geek in this particular niche. And then, you know, go into the list of things and find out, oh, there's a whole group of flower arrangers, or there's a whole group of, in my case, aquarium nerds Mm. um, who wanted to get together and talk about water chemistry and, you know, how to how to breed fish in captivity, which Sounds unbelievably dorky and kind of is to anybody who's outside of it, um, or even in it. And and yet, like in my day on CompuServe, uh, Fishnet, which was the, the the special interest group for fish nerds, was something like the third biggest uh, by user numbers thing. And I don't know what were second and first, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing sports or something. I don't know, but I know right. that that group was so passionate. And I think it's partly because there was no way to interact with those other people unless you went to like a fish store in your town. It just wasn't there was no social space right. for people with certain kinds of hobbies to get together i mean we would they had uh you could subscribe to get a newsletter kind of thing uh, but to have the ability to go in and do chat to do literal you know uh chat rooms and uh messages around boards. around
0: an interest that you couldn't get in meat space yeah yeah because right. i I had the uh, the similar experience so <clears throat> We should probably get into what what we both did when we first got on there. Like, so like I got on Prodigy, you you were on CompuServe, and I got on in 1990. And the reason I remember that so clearly is, so uh, my family is from the Cincinnati area. 1990 was the year that the Reds uh, won the World Series, the last time they've been in a World Series. <laughs> and I was living down in Florida, and so uh, my my grandfather back in Cincinnati was really my only contact with you know other you know, Cincinnati fans, there's no one down in Florida that really cares about the Reds. And so one of the first things I did on prodigy there were three things, Star Trek uh, message boards, Mystery Science Theater message boards, and Cincinnati Reds message boards. Because And and that to me was the biggest revelation because I had the experience that obviously everyone has now, where I went to a place and people would be talking about last night's game, bitching about Chris Sabo's injury record and, you know, (laughs) <laughs> and so it wasn't just reading the box score or you know reading the article about last night's game. It was fandom. It was fandom as we're used to it, ubiquitously today. But yeah, that was the thing that to me was like, wow, okay, this is great. I, I'm going to be on here every single day. When you say Star Trek, do you mean TNG? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But but what what I did was I role played in the Star Trek universe. So it it was it it wasn't. It didn't have to specifically be TNG. It, it probably was more TNG because that was still on the air at that point. So I'm sure, you know, our, our wars were against Cardassians um, instead of Klingons, because the right. Klingons would have been our allies at that point. You know, so <clears throat> Yeah, and they, they'd better established,
1: you know, where the Klingon Empire specifically was or whatever. In, right, right. In whichever quadrant. Yeah. I, yeah, there's certainly something about that. I've been listening to a podcast lately, which is called The X-Files Files. Mm-hmm. And with uh,
0: Kumail Nan- Nanjiani, yeah. And
1: Kumail is an amazing guy, in part because he's bothered to go back to uh, what is now Google Groups. They've they've basically scraped a Usenet group site and put a semi usable search interface on it.
0: Yeah, I use it. I use it for research quite a bit, actually.
1: By the way, we should talk about that separately because I've been trying to make my own offline version mm. um, because it's it's so hard to use for certain kinds of queries, but. Mm-hmm. Anywho, uh, he goes back and says, you know, for each episode of The X-Files, which debuts in 92 or 3 or something, somewhere yeah, in there.
0: Yeah, yeah, somewhere in there. I was so, still in middle school, yeah.
1: Yeah, so there's, um, you know, the there are uh, internet news groups, and they are, you know, like alt.tv, um, and eventually alt.tv.xfiles uh, was, a, was a thing, was this group that, you know, people talked about what was on TV last night. And you would have anywhere from just sort of casual people who happen to have net access to super, super duper fans who had, you know, VHS taped the show and watched it five times and had stuff to say. But he's going back today in 2014 um, to shows that were happening 20 years ago and finding the evolution of a of a culture around this show online. So this is the evolution of like television fandom as expressed uh, in a message board. And that existed – for me, starting in, I think, around 80, it could have been as early as 86, but I think it was 88 that we got CompuServe, and I began to know that I could, I could kind of access some of this stuff. Um, now, I couldn't afford to access much of it uh, until I eventually got a job as a, a sysop for Fishnet, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I got paid just in free time. There was no money. Um, but as a, you know, a somewhat broke kid, like we had the service, but you had to pay this hourly fee to do it. And I think that's a whole thing, by the way, which is the trying to understand how much it cost simply to get on your computer and do something on the telephone. Because mm-hmm. um, the first charge was simply, is there a local number? Um, right, right. And usually there, you know, there would be for the commercial services and stuff. But if you wanted to call a BBS, a bulletin board, um, and it wasn't local to you. You would have to dial long distance, which, like, hey kids, that used to cost a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> there were all these complicated ways to try to make it cost less money. Buy blocks of minutes, and like when calling cards became a thing in the nineties, right, that was right. a, that was a whole thing.
0: But but on top of that, then CompuServe and Prodigy are charging you by the hour. So exactly. So if you get it, you have a certain pool of free hours per month, but very small. You blaze through those in a few few hours. And so then, if you decided, I'm going to dial online and um, do my Star Trek role-playing game, uh, and you spend two hours, that could be $20. Bucks. Um, you could easily, in a month, have a bill to AOL that would run into the hundreds of dollars if if you were using it too much.
1: Yeah, and for me, on CopyServe, it, it came to a head in one of those $100 bill uh, moments so fishnet was something that I was aware of because I was, you know, I had a fish tank and I was into it and that was my thing. And living in Florida on the coast, I had access to go out and um, fiddle around with saltwater fish, which was interesting but also sufficiently technically complex to deal with in the home that I wasn't very good at keeping them alive. I could go catch them, but I couldn't necessarily maintain like an ecosystem in my you know, bedroom. Um, so I would get on – Fishnet and check stuff out. You know, this was message boards. There were file downloads where you could download articles about, you know, how to take care of X Y Z uh, type of fish, and there were chat sessions. And I happened across it one one fateful morning during what was this annual weekend long extravaganza of trivia and prizes. So if you answer trivia questions correctly in a chat thing or in the message boards. Um, you would be awarded physical prizes that they would mail you, like a new filter for your tank or, you know, food (laughs) for your fish or whatever, which actually were things that as a kid were very, very tempting to me. So I just like dug in. I just monopolized the phone line and spent many hours over these two or three days of this long weekend – like playing trivia games you know taking fourth place or whatever and bringing home a filter that they later did mail to me um and then the bill came and it was i don't remember how much it was exactly it was over a hundred dollars and my parents sat me down and said okay you're 11 and we don't have a hundred dollars to spend on pretty much anything right just on top you know every month so we're gonna have to figure out how to handle this and that's what led me to get a job with fishnet as a typist and i didn't know how to type at the time which was one of the reasons that was a bad idea but as
0: a as a typist so what what are you typing
1: well so there were these uh newsletters and and actual just you know fish magazines that were actually in print some of them were not from the u.s but they were in english i would get these boxes of printed material and i would transcribe them i would type them back into text files plain text files and upload them to the file area of the, you know, of the of fishnet. And they were categorized under, you know, saltwater, freshwater, or whatever. And you'd give them keywords and stuff. And this is because at the time, um, you know, OCR technology either didn't exist or was just really crappy. Or was so expensive that it was cheaper to say, hey, kid. You know, like,
0: yeah, and I don't.
1: Yeah. I actually honestly don't remember what my actual commitment was. Whether it was a certain number of hours or a certain number of articles or something per month. But... Basically, it was, hey, um, you know, type in articles, and you get this flag added to your account. Where when you're in the Fishnet area, the billing timer
0: is just suspended. So, so that was was that CompuServe saying that to you, or was that other users that were higher up with Fishnet that had already made deals with CompuServe? Yes, yeah, it's,
1: it's the higher ups at Fishnet. So they had a way within Fishnet to say. Hey, Compuserve. For this user ID, which was, by the way, in my case like a long string of numbers seven one one five zero comma four six three. You can probably Google that and find <laughs> embarrassing stuff, I guess. Um, but they they would take that ID and say, when you're accessing our our group, just don't build this person. And because when you first signed on, you were kind of in this uh, nowhere land, and you had to just pick a place to go. You didn't. The timer didn't start until you had gone into a group like, you know, a Fishnet or a whatever, Sportsnet, something or other. And so effectively, I could go into Fishnet totally for free. Even the signing in process didn't cost anything. Um, And that was great in part because Fishnet was a really large community. Like there were many, many, many hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands of people involved in this on a regular basis. Um, So for me, that was the internet. Like that was all the online community that I had access to. Um, and so even though the discussions were primarily fish based, you would find a way fish within based. that to, you know, to broaden out the interaction just to just regular life. Um, and that was a whole experience. That was a real trip, like just just making friends on the computer, because this was a very unknown quantity in 1990 or whatever it was. And I was really getting into it. Um, Just, just knowing what it was and there wasn't really much um, etiquette or expectation as to, you know, how much would you tell some stranger and right. And, and and do
0: they have to know that you're an 11 or 12 year old kid?
1: Yeah. And initially I just didn't
0: mention that part. Yeah. Neither did I. Right. You Uh, know uh, what? Okay. This is an interesting thought. Uh, People of exactly our generation, so let's say born 75 to 85 or whatever, so that we're coming of age, our teen years are right when online and the web is starting. And we had, we kind of more than anyone else had this golden age period where when you're 13, how delicious is it to go into a public space? and interact with adults which you're assuming are adults they could be other 12-year-old kids pretending <laughs> to be adults just like you but you right. basically get to play adult because no one it's that it's that stupid New Yorker thing on the internet no one knows you're a dog but like it's a it was just a, we had the perfect timing that weird generational timing where we were the first ones to get to do that and and how how exciting it was to as a 13-year-old be able to exist in a public space as an adult as a functional adult basically yeah, it was profound.
1: I mean, and I were feeling, uh, I don't know what it was. It just it just felt thrilling. Uh, I ended up changing my job from typist to being um, a moderator of online chat for Fishnet, and also I would run some message boards, which basically just meant, you know, babysit them, make sure nobody fights. But in these chat sessions, they were usually Friday and Saturday nights, so that was okay for me. I didn't have school the next day. And these adults would get on, and... You know, you'd say, oh, hey, Joe, how you doing? What's up? And he'd say, oh, I, you know, my wife and I just got back from the bowling league. And then the wife would log in from the other computer and he'd be like, bowling league? Wow, they're actual grownups, you know? And uh, I usually had the TV on in the background um, and I'd sit there and just watch these lines of text scroll by and form these friendships with people who were just very regular people. The only difference I could figure out was, for whatever reason, they could afford to log on on a Friday or Saturday night and spend. I think it was six bucks an hour or something like that to to chat about fish and nothing. I mean, a lot of it was just about nothing. It was just saying hello to people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was that that moment was powerful, and I, I think that you know all generations have their flavors of technological moments. Like, I, I don't think I'll ever understand. Um, the YouTube moment in the way that somebody who is currently sure. like a very young teen understands right, exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like I, you know, I'm sure I access YouTube a lot, but I, I've never participated in YouTube in the way that people really, other people do. Um, right. These,
0: these people that have 20 million subscribers to their YouTube channel. And when, yeah. they appear, when they appear in public, you know, it's like, it's like the Beatles in 1964 kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's time to commit.
1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he
0: learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's com slash Wondery.
1: I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned um, like a role-playing game. Were you playing this online, like on Prodigy?
0: Yeah, on uh, just one of their boards. So, <coughs> we... Well yeah, we, no, seriously, was walk me through
1: like how does this work because I was playing D&D but I would play it with other, you know, other 12-year-olds who would come over. We would organize our, you know, dollar bills and try to order a pizza which sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. You know,
0: it's foggy yeah. to me because I also remember it being email-based. So I wonder if it was like you could make a post to the board and and it could function as an email or it would function as so it was just basically threaded messages but mm-hmm. ours mm-hmm. and and there were if you went to okay, whatever, let's say maybe it was just the Star Trek RPG channel, okay? <laughs> and there would be a list of 400, okay? And ours, the one that I – did I join it or did we start it? Anyway, I think I joined it. It was called the United Federation of Planets. Of and course, that's Right, yes. right. And so the UFP – so our little channel was UFP. And so it was divided into ships – Um, and so the dungeon master role would be the admiral. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then there were vice admirals and then each ship had a captain. And so when you would join one of these, you would join as a lowly ensign or a comm guy or a security officer or something. (laughs) And you, and so basically your admiral would, you know would give you a mission and so oh there's trouble on the on the Romulan border uh I want the USS Ticonderoga to go check it out uh the USS Ticonderoga was my first ship uh uh-huh. and so good choice and so, yeah. and so they would tell you okay the card the the, the the Romulans attacked and then and then everyone on that ship would be like so if I'm at Khan I'd be like all right uh you know shields up uh what do you want me to do captain captain would do a message uh, you know, whatever. So, yeah, we, we would have missions that, that the admirals would send down in the role of, of the dungeon master. And then, yeah, you just basically, each message was how you in your role on that ship responded. And then, so it was sort of like this weird hierarchical thing. And, you know, I've never I've never done World, World of Warcraft or what's that one, League of Legends now. So I don't know if they function in this way, but it was weird because it was this hierarchical function because you could have opportunities to change the storyline but kind of not really you basically had to do your role and things like that but so the thing to do was to move up into the ship so Mm -hmm. as people came and went they would say okay now you're the now you're number two now you're the captain so the thing to do would be you everyone wanted to become the captain of their own ship because then you had more control over the story and I stayed there long enough that eventually I became vice admiral and then admiral. So then you're the one that is setting the storylines and things like that. Wait, wait, wait! You were admiral of the Ticonderoga? Well, I or was admiral of the ship? whole. I was admiral of the whole UFP at one point. I wrote a constitution. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, because you know it was the usual thing where people would. <laughs> Does have, this the, exist? Is there a way? Uh, to... <laughs> in paper form, it exists in a storage <laughs> unit in in Michigan right now. I know. I I know where it is. Uh, And boy, I remember, I remember working days and days on that, but it it actually served a real purpose because for things like this, settling disputes, like there would flame wars would, would grow up. People wouldn't like how the mission was going. And so it was the, we called it a constitution because we're trying to pretend that we're, (laughs) we're the actual United Federation of planets, but it was basically a set of guidelines to make sure that things like this didn't happen. So, you know, all right, if if, if the mission right. goes in this direction and you don't like it, you know, here are your here's your recourse. If you don't like your ship, you can get another one. You here's the process to get to another ship, all that stuff. So, yeah. So that was the thing. Like so I I did that for maybe 3 years and like I said, eventually I'm the admiral of the UFP and so I'm the dungeon master. I'm the one coming up with the missions and things like that. The biggest thing about that was again that I'm 12 and 13 and I know that, you know, I remember when I was captain of the ship for the first time. My number two was a guy that was in the military. He was like, you know, a a thirty-year-old guy or whatever, because you know, you'd get friendly with people outside of the storyline and stuff like that. And but in within the game, he's taking orders from me, and I'm thirteen, and he's in the military. You
1: know what I mean? Yeah. Actually, well, brief anecdote there on my side because this is just too weird for me. We had a guy, and I, I forget whether he worked there was just a, a common chat guy but his handle was cim and occasionally you know people would either go with a real name or uh you know a handle a, a made-up name and at some point topic turned to and this by the way this guy was in uh the navy so he would have these long stretches where he would be gone on a boat and then he would come back and be you know doing stuff and so part of his concern was how do i you know take care of my fish when i'm gone how do i right, have right. tell people enough you know information So in that, eventually, at some point, his job changed and he was no longer going out on on the boats or whatever. And we said, well, what what the hell does CIM mean? And he said, well, I'll tell you, I used to be on nuclear submarines and it was unclear whether that was, you know, used to be meant six weeks ago or I don't know, or, you know, years ago. But he said, uh, so I was on subs and we would have these drills, uh, safety drills, where they would say, okay, everybody, pretend that the, you know, the, the reactor has malfunctioned and something terrible has occurred and, you know, we'll, we'll walk you through a scenario and we all have to have a role. So, you know, one guy has to go rogue and decide to like open the hatch, right. And his job is to try to get to the hatch and open it. So those other guys have to restrain him. And, you know, one guy, you know, tries to fall, go by the book. Um, and this guy, CIM uh, said, well, for whatever reason, they always gave me the crappiest job. And it was called Contaminated Injured Man. (laughs) And Contaminated Injured Man had to lie on the ground moaning and trying to get someone to help him or decontaminate him. Um, And so poor CIM. He never survived. He would always just end up as, you know, chalked up as a casualty. Mm. But that was his handle. And I I used to think, I remember when I heard this, I just thought, oh, my God, he's in my chat room. A guy on a nuclear sub is in my chat room talking to me about his nuclear sub, uh, and also you know fish and stuff. But what a what an experience to be a child, right? And to have this kind of exposure. And you it know, might,
0: you I know. I wonder. Don't you get the sense that kids today, like, th- that's not that amazing, like that, right? Right. That that you you could interact in a space with other adu- with with adults and and for all practical purposes be equal to them. I also get a sense. Don't you think today that like kids and again I'm just speculating as a 36 year old person here uh, kids go to the internet now almost to flee from adults like uh, like it seems to me that the the behavior of, of kids online today is almost all about creating this other space that's just for kids away from adult prying eyes right? I guess. I mean, I think
1: there was some of that going on with me as a kid and BBSs, because BBSs for me were exactly that. It was other kids, like a kid who had a phone line who could host his own bulletin board, which, by the way, just to cover BBSs, we'll maybe talk about that later or something. But this was a, a micro local service where you'd have your own uh, machine that people would dial into and they could leave messages and do basic kinds of things like chat. Um or play games, by the way, and, and right. it was
0: it was usually super local because who would pay for a one eight hundred number? So, <laughs> right. you know, if in, in the nine nine four one area code, there would be maybe thirty people, and it was just that they would hook their computer up to a phone line, run the software, and then other people would dial in directly to that person's computer. So, right, basically, you they they would put software on there to do chat, to do messages, and things like that. But basically, the only thing that's on there is whatever this guy is sharing with you on his computer, basically.
1: Yeah. And occasionally they got to be bigger and sort of more commercial and had multiple lines and, you know, but a lot of that stuff, I think, was driven by software piracy or other other interests, um, maybe porn and stuff. But like the ones I was exposed to in in Florida were literally people who were at the other high school or whatever who had done this. And you would you just go log into this. So that that really was creating an online space away from adults, because. The kid in the high school. One of the questions to get an account was, "Who are you? <laughs> like, what school do you go to?" And you would kind of have to tell them the truth because they would call you up on the phone sometimes to check, um, or you'd have to know the person or something. So, as to what kids do today and how they treat the internet, I probably am not qualified to comment. Yeah, but, n- nor am I. Right. I'm, yeah. But you know, I, I honestly, I my impression of it is that the the barrier between like adult and sort of early teen communication in general has fuzzed a lot uh, since, say, the mid-'80s. Like, it would be unconscionable, at least in my memory, uh, to wander into an adult space and have a full-fledged interaction where you were treated like an equal, except in certain kinds of spaces. And what, what I want to point out is... The public library for me was a space where you could go and have a, an adult conversation with a grown-up, um, especially if you would played D&D. There were mm. D&D-playing grown-ups who would let mm-hmm. kids into their thing. Now, it still was kind of mediated by the fact that your parents would talk to them and make sure they – or try to ascertain whether they were crazy or whatever. But right. it was pretty rare to come across – any method by which you would interact with with adults unless they were your teachers, your parents, or your, your coach right? yeah. your coach you know and in, like in all those you know.
0: situations they're still the authority figure they're not your equal,
1: yeah, and the chat room breaks that the chat room just says, well, okay, we're all people just talking about stuff, and you get to choose who you get to be and that was a a, a thing of tremendous power. And my question for you is as another person like me who had chat experience and kind of online experiences, do you think that that Do you think that set you up later for other things? Did it make it better or worse when you were an actual adult in the world
0: trying to interact with people? Uh, well, like you, I mean, it, it taught me to type. I never did Mavis Bacon or anything like that. (laughs) You know, by age 12, I'm able to type without looking at the screen because I spent hours online doing this crap. Yep. Um, did it help me or hurt me dealing with real people? I don't think it hurt, and it certainly helped because you know, like any other teenager, when you go through those years when you're the nerd before you can reinvent yourself into, remake yourself into some other type and stuff like that, then yeah, that, that allowed an outlet for socialization that I wouldn't have, you know, if You know, famously in in sixth grade, it was a bad year for me and I was a nerd and had no friends. And so that's the exact time that Prodigy was there to do these sorts of things where I might not talk to anybody throughout a school day, but I can come home and for four hours talk to people, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was very much like that for me. And I for me, seventh grade was the I think sixth grade I, I got into it and I was playing around online. Um, I I for, honestly forget which year I actually got the job. I would have been. Um,
0: so you eventually old, become I mean? a full a full fledged sysop for for yeah, sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's there's levels to it. So you know the, the the main thing was just getting the free access. So anybody who did any kind of volunteer work for this uh, fishnet thing would get this free flag. And then at some point you became kind of a staff member, which was a, a step up from that. And you had to be kind of a trusted person and the staff people got another flag on their account that let them do stuff like delete messages or move them to other, you know, other boards.
0: And, you know, that's interesting because all of those services had that. And I touched on that when I talked about Prodigy. One of the reasons that people fled Prodigy was because they tried to get so, uh, what's the word, authoritarian, narky about that, where
1: they,
0: they were going in and deleting conversations and things like that. And... Another reason that, again, AOL came out on top is they were a lot more lenient about that stuff. But even AOL had it where there would be people like Chris Higgins in there as a sysop for a, for a major chat room or something that they knew would be filled with people every night that would, if someone gets too unruly, they would kick them out. Like, literally kick them out. So imagine, you know, you deal with trolls, you know, on, on, on comment threads now. You have no power to, to delete them but unless you own own the thread or whatever. But yeah, there were people like you that were sitting there throughout the hour and kicking people out and and yeah. deleting you know bad things. Often you know any curse word or whatever was mainly what they were looking at. Because as I touched on in the in in the chapter is that Prodigy was Sears and IBM, so yeah. <laughs> they did not want even one s word for anything. So that's that was the problem is that the the sysops there and the employees there at Prodigy would delete anything and everything and 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 people got fed up with it. But then I'm sure you were uh you know you were, you were a balanced sysop that you know was reasonable <laughs> to people and Well yeah, actually we were we were pretty
1: civilized and I, uh, to be frank, our community, the people who came on to do the you know chats and write messages they were overwhelmingly not
0: trolls. The major are you thing... saying? Are you saying a, a conversation about fish can't immediately devolve into calling someone Hitler? <laughs> Come on, we know anywhere any yeah. conversation on the internet can in five minutes devolve into people calling people Nazis.
1: Did I say that I met that guy for five minutes? Uh, Godwin,
0: the Godwin's Law guy.
1: Yeah, he was at a conference and he walked up and he was looking at my booth. I was working for a a, a meeting software company. And I was like, "Wait, Mike Godwin? I'm like, are you the are you the guy?" And he's like, "Yep, I'm the guy." And I I immediately Googled him, and I'm like, "Yep, that's that's the guy who coined that phrase." Hmm. That's what uh, what a, what a great level of fame that is, right? You could tell he was kind of like, "Ah, yeah, that guy." I can't move on anyway. <laughs> but yeah, no, people could be civil, and they were civil. So my job also there were there were rules that were set out for me that were like, you know, if people are being really profane, because by the way, there were. Uh, there were different chat sessions. So we had like a window of three hours and you could go in and chat anytime. There was no reason you wouldn't, but they would publish times and say, okay, from time X to time Y that's when you should go there. And everybody would kind of, you know, people would show up and you'd have upwards of, you'd have dozens of people in a chat room. And they would say, this one is like family friendly. And then this one is like after 11 PM, um, it gets a little looser, you know, you can, you can swear and stuff. Um, And the main thing you were trying to do was help people who didn't know what was going on try to figure out what was going on, which is an interesting concept when you're online because you didn't have any special tools to do it. You had to just sort of type at them. So you would see a new person and you'd sort of say, hello, new person's name, and then nothing would happen. And then five minutes later, you would get this paragraph because they'd just been typing the whole time and eventually they hit like the end of the input buffer or hit enter and so all of their stuff, like, I don't know what's happening, how do I type in here, what is going, who are you, thank, hello, thank you, just all comes through as one thing. Yeah. And then you start to train them on the thing and say, okay, after you type a word, hit enter, after you type a sentence, hit enter, and they do it. The one, one of the special tools we had was we could yank a user from one channel into another channel. Mm-hmm. So I could take them from the main chat channel into like some other room where nobody happened to be. Uh, so that would be a a tool you could use if you wanted to like spend time with a user who was being either very good or very bad. (laughs) Um, and you could pull them over there to train them how to do something, uh, or have a quick conversation. And occasionally other sysops would be on there too. And, you know, you'd have to make a call about something. And that was our way of doing kind of private chat. We actually had one, I think there was one staff chat channel. Like there was one staff message board too, but you could pull a live chat user uh, out of the channel and then forcibly put them somewhere. And that was one interesting feature, I think, maybe of, a, of CompuServe or of its chat system in general, which was people had unique IDs. So if they kept coming back, you could just ban them. Um, they they didn't have a way to generate a new ID uh, without buying a new CompuServe account.
0: Right. So there
1: was a somewhat of a limit to how much they could kind of grief you. Um, anyway, but yeah, we... It was moderation. You would go through things and try to spot content that you thought was out of line, whether because you were wielding your stick or because it actually violated some actual guideline. Right, but right. it was a pretty a pretty easy job. Um. Anyway, yeah, that was that was a, my job that I had, and it, it was a little while before I revealed to people privately, you know, kind of one by one. By the way, I'm twelve. Right, um, which was. I, to give them credit, everybody's reaction to that was super cool. I mean, the main reaction literally was, "Oh, cool! I'm 27 or whatever," you know. And in retrospect, you know, to me, 27 was unfathomably old. Yeah, you know? yeah. I'm like, Oh my god, you've been to like, oh, what do you do? Like, work at a job or something? Right, right. And the answer is, oh well, yeah, you know, I I live wherever
0: and I do a job and this is this is what my life is like. Um, yeah, well, I even yeah. I even had a, a thing. This, I I was debating whether to even bring this up because it's slightly embarrassing, but like, so like I even had a a girl that got a crush on me. Oh my! And to the point where you know we're talking outside the role playing game, we're emailing all this stuff, and so eventually she sends me a photo. Like we we agree we're going to send photos, right? So again, am I th- like thirteen or fourteen maybe? Um, so I get this photo from clearly a uh, mid to late 20s woman right uh-huh. and i don't know if we if I, I i can't remember if i was trying to keep my age from her or something or other but you know uh th- this is no like sort of hot for teacher thing because once i determined that she's 27 28 i'm like well all right cutting off contact with her you know <laughs> i don't Did think you i fess up do you know? i don't think so yeah, I probably yeah. was, I probably was caddish about it, but I do remember as soon as I got that photo being like, well, this is done, you know, and, and time to disappear basically. <laughs> you
1: know? Well, you know, yeah, to be honest, that's also, that's a certain kind of social training. Um, yeah. How to, yeah. how to handle a web of lies that you've right. constructed that around your identity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, as much as I, that's a joke, it's also that, I mean, just trying to figure out how to present yourself to people and the ability to kind of play with that. Um was super useful for me because uh, mm. I think normally that's you experiment with that when you get into, into a larger part of school, um, right
0: into college years and stuff.
1: like Yeah, that. probably, or you know, or into a job or something where you have to. Oh hi, I am so and so, and here's my thing and stuff. You learn, you kind of learn how to how to talk to people and how to
0: introduce yourself into hey, context. You know yeah. something I've been sitting on because I thought about it several minutes ago, but, um, like y- you know, we should probably talk about how there were like different. There was almost a fanboyism about the various online services because my yeah. my comment was going to be all of those minutes ago that like yeah CompuServe was the place where the fish boards would be because my <laughs> I was never on CompuServe yeah. but like my sense of it always was well that's for the super geeks right yeah and yeah. that and that Prodigy was more mainstream and then and then when AOL came along initially there was a lot of people turning their nose up at Pro, at at AOL that like. Well, those people are just buffoons, you know. Right. Those are the great unwashed masses. So, do you remember that at all? Like having a sense that oh, prodigy people are not my people, computer people are my people. Absolutely, and the, but the but I didn't know
1: it at first because the world was so small that I didn't know that prodigy and you know genie for instance. Like I don't think I knew that those were a thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All I knew was one day, you know, my dad shows up with a modem and a CompuServe disk. And we're dialing into CompuServe and doing CompuServe. And so in my view of the world, all I mean, I guess I must have known there were other services, but it didn't matter to me because I didn't have access to them and I never would. So we were just a CompuServe family from day one. And this makes sense. I mean, my dad is a very technical person and, you know, in, and totally comfortable using a command line interface and typing everything in text and I don't know what about, I should probably ask him, he may not remember, but what about CompuServe made him choose it over anything else? But for whatever reason, that was it. And I have this distinct memory of going over, I had this family friend, uh, and it was like two school teachers and their two kids. And I remember the, the, the son showed me Leisure Suit Larry one time, and I was floored. Because A, yeah. my computer
0: didn't have a graphics card. I loved uh, all those Sierra games and and oh, yeah. Loser Suit Larry, but of course didn't buy it, had to get it pirated because, right, yeah.
1: There's nobody, well, yeah, I and mean, that's, that's a whole topic here of, you know, kids, and for me, that's also a kind of part of the function of BBSs was a way, I wouldn't say a convenient way, but like a convenient-ish way to pirate things with your friends because right. the files were so large, it would take you days how, right, to get And
0: how much, how much of what you were doing online, because I'll answer too, was that piracy and porn stuff? Um, it was actually pretty well, so
1: piracy was a big deal i mean i 'll just i 'll be right out and say that yeah I remember i, I never yeah.
0: bought i never bought uh, castle, castle Wolfenstein, I never bought doom, I never bought any right. of those because right. I never bought mist i don 't know i don 't think you could get Myst. but yeah, there so was a period a of years on, right? there you where, where everything the you got was pirated.
1: Yeah. No, I, t- I didn't buy Wolfenstein. I did play it. I bought, I, re- I remember, okay, this was a point of pride for me.
0: But what I'm see, saying is, what I'm yeah. saying is, is I played all those. I just didn't buy them. Sure. No,
1: but I remember when I did buy my first game that I like saved up for, which was Ultima 7, I think, which I then spent six months or something obsessively playing. Like the fact that I purchased that game was uh, unusual. Like that was not the norm at all. And this was in an era when a game would cost 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 80, like a lot. Um but, yeah, so piracy was a, a serious thing. I played all the Wing Commander games, downloaded from my friend in Sarasota. Um, but, yeah, so piracy was one thing. Um, initially, that was a huge lure for me to get into that scene because I couldn't afford anything because I was a kid. One of the central facts of being a kid is you don't have access to money. Um, right. So, you know, pirating games, that's what that was. And then, then the communication thing appeared – uh, because first of all, you couldn't really pirate things on CompuServe because it was this corporate entity run by other corporate, you know, sub entities, and so you could get your fish articles, which were they were like reprinted by permission kind of situation. Um, but there was no way to get a trove of anything, um, and like porn was a thing. I don't want to super get into it, but it was a, that was a thing later on. Uh, well, where there were, there were two yeah.
0: things. It's funny because <clears throat> I'm do, my next chapter episode is going to be history of online pornography uh, oh, God. hopefully hopefully as an industry but a big yeah. I don't know how like it, it would be dumb to me to not tell that as part of the story because oh, yeah. as we know it's a true thing that porn often leads new technology development and stuff like that so yeah I'm, I'm in the middle of researching that but so that's why I've been thinking about it a lot lately uh, but yeah so there were You're right, BBSs, because there were certain BBSs where, again, this is a guy's computer, and if he decided that one of the things that his service would offer is, hey, listen, in this file here is 2,000 porn pics that I've saved or accumulated. Because basically what you had to do for that sort of stuff was you traded, because it wasn't like there were libraries of stuff. It would be like you would have to encounter someone who would be like, all right, here, I'll give you this zip file of 300 pics. Right. 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 And I so I have this really specific uh,
1: memory of this that kind of that brought this all to a head, the sort of the online porn question, which was I had, uh, gosh, probably there were five or six guys who I knew from school and we had a land party at one point. This is probably the only land party we ever actually attempted because it didn't work because most of us didn't have ethernet cards we didn't realize that that was important so we were using like null modem cables and stuff it was messy point was a LAN party was when you would bring your computer to somebody else's house and you would try to plug them all in on a local area network and you would typically play video games against each other or in the case of these guys as i found out when i showed up a couple of them had cd-rom drives and a couple of them ran bulletin boards and they were buying these shareware cds and these porn cds and they were like hey do you want 600 megs of porn or whatever? And my answer was like, well, there's want, and then there's can fit on my hard drive, you right. know? Right, Um, And so then, but that that forced me to confront like, okay, so what do I do with this? Like, what do I, and also socially, I had never had another human being walk up to me and like,
0: yeah. you know, yeah. hand
1: me a nudie magazine or whatever, which was effectively, they were like, would you like a library full of, right. uh, of an endless, to me, the, the most endless stream of, of Farrah Fawcett pictures ever known to man, right? <laughs> Like, And so I remember feeling um, like titillated, but also really freaked out and scared uh, because I didn't know as a, I guess I was probably 14 or 15 at this point. Like I didn't really know what to do with this. I didn't know how to interact socially. I still probably don't know how to interact socially with people who try to hand you a CD-ROM full of porn. But I felt like this was a zone where I wanted to be faceless. Like mm-hmm. if I was going to participate in it, I didn't want to be in some dude's bedroom like, like duping his cd uh almost it seemed too personal or something
0: yeah but okay so this leads into aol again because so when aol does do chat and again as i said in the chapter it's it, it wasn't ever stated but it was very very well known that basically aol made its its empire on this stuff so now you have chat rooms and so, I don't know when I got on AOL, maybe 93, 94. Mm-hmm. You can go into the chat rooms, and so one thing you can do is talk dirty to other people. And again, as a kid, you pretend to be other people or whatever. But the other <laughs> thing that you can do is if you're in these chat rooms, people can trade files back and forth to each other. So, again, this that that was really where the, the, the porn floodgates opened because then you just had to go around and it's person to person again uh, i don't yes. i don't remember you know encountering any libraries or cd's and stuff but people would be like here's a zip file what have you got and you would trade back and forth and and so like again that that is what would <laughs> that is what would keep people on AOL for hours at a time because again if you're you know talking dirty to some lady in tulsa and it goes 4 hours you, you ain't gonna stop and then, and then, yeah, I'd, listen, people would just get on all night long and, and trade porn picks. Yeah.
1: Well, and I should also say trading as a thing, as a trading of piracy was mm. a thing too. Like you had to come with a, you know, a program they didn't have. And that was how you would get onto BBSs. at least in where I lived, you would have to find some way to get something that somebody wanted. Um, which sometimes meant going to the store and buying it, right? Right. And then you would, you know, take your code that activated it and the, the crack, that to them. The crack code, you'd, yeah. Yeah, you would crack it or you would use your serial, or whatever method you would do. You'd get into this community. Um, but yeah, it was, it was all about trading. Um, one thing but we like to rewind slightly. We were talking kind of about the tribalism of different online services and right, I interrupted right. myself in my story about, about Prodigy. Uh, I saw Prodigy on like i want to say it was a commodore maybe or an amiga some kind of system that was exotic to me or maybe it was just a had was a pc with a color graphics card but i saw this thing and i saw this dude who was i think the vice principal of the my brother's middle school or something Mm -hmm. he was Mm -hmm. you know um the smart guy, and he had dialed into this thing and was showing us, like, oh, I can look, I can get the weather on here. And I looked at this, and it was a
0: cartoon to me in yeah, a bad way. because the technical reason for that is they, <clears throat> I can't remember, I can look it up while we're talking, but that's a specific graphics code. Yeah. So that it had, I don't know, I think 16 colors and stuff. So the, their Prodigy, until very, very late, had no real images. Again, another innovation that AOL did is they're like, well, we'll have real pictures here for you. But Prodigy from its inception was this proprietary language and this proprietary graphics code that basically it's like bit mapping stuff. So, yeah. I thought it had vector line art. Vector line art. That's exactly what it is. You're right. Which is a technical
1: way of saying like, you know, crudely drawn lines. And the crudeness was up to the client side to dictate. Exactly. So if
0: you you go to, if you went to the, say... I want to see what the weather is on Prodigy. Scrolling down your screen would be a sort of cartoony looking picture of a cloud with a sun behind it. But the sun (laughs) would just be a ball of yellow and like little lines of yellow going out and stuff like that. So they weren't true pictures. It really was, and and everything on Prodigy was that. It, It was text and then this crude style of graphics.
1: Well, and the ad. Uh huh. And that's one thing I wanted to get into was like, First off, when I looked at this thing and I was used to seeing a page full of text that I had, you know, skillfully navigated with my dumb <laughs> commands and stuff to go from a like an 80 column page of text to whatever this was, which was like CGA resolution or something. It was it was maybe 320 by 240 uh, in in color, which was a step up from what I had. I didn't have color, but it just looked. Dumb. Like it looked like it was. I honestly had this gut reaction that was like, "This is CompuServe, but for dumb people." That's <laughs> what I thought. That's what I thought it was. Yeah, and yeah. I because CompuServe
0: not... still had they they didn't have graphics and it was basically command line prompt based stuff. Like you had to yeah. type in, "I want to go to here." You didn't click on a, a button that takes you there.
1: Yeah, you type like slash go space fishnet, and if you typed it wrong, it didn't work. And there was no clicking. There were no menus. There was nothing. And later, I mean, by the way, one other note about this is, like, they, these uh, programs were invented that would log on, scrape all the stuff you might want. Uh, This didn't work for chat, but for message boards and files and stuff. You would tell it, you know, go to Fishnet, download everything from these, you know, five message boards that's new, and then present it to me in an offline user interface that's better than what's on CompuServe. That was a whole cottage industry of shareware mm-hmm. and i used one of them it was amazing and i remember also paying for that it was 30 dollars. it was a huge investment um but yeah the interface was terrible um uh, the, the native interface to copy served was was terrible and pretty much remained terrible um even after they tried to you know roll out
0: but the the silly graphics of prodigy and the ads <laughs> on prodigy really turned you off it was it was goofy
1: um and also the fact that there was an ad there i was like why is there an ad for Whatever you know, uh, flowers or right, well, something, so, some physical so, thing you could get by, I guess, clicking or typing, by right. that thing. I guess I so. Don't know. The
0: the story of that is, again, um, Prodigy being a joint venture between Sears and IBM, Sears obviously being, <clears throat> you know, a retailer, a catalog company originally, and stuff like that. So, their original conception for it was that. You know it, it it was going they were going to make all their money on commerce mm-hmm. so most of the ads very very few of the ads that you would see on prodigy in 1990 would be for ford or coke or anything like that um they were mostly for whatever prodigy had strung together like 1-800 flowers or whatever things that they thought they could get people to buy and pay for through this prodigy service Mm-hmm. And so their whole business plan from day one is that, okay, w- we will charge people a monthly or hourly fee, but that'll be just to keep the system running. We're going to make all of our money by taking a cut of these millions of dollars of transactions. People will do banking and buy plane tickets and stuff through Prodigy. And that's, you know, it's sort of like, it. it that sort of was the dream with interactive television that they were always trying to do, you know you'll be able to order your movie tickets with your remote and stuff like that. So again, this is one of the, the weird differences between the two is that that was, that was what prodigy always thought it was going to be. And so when people were not buying things, they were sort of at a <laughs> loss. And again, I, I hope I did a good job of kind of describing this in the chapter. So prodigy, when they start to see that all people really want to do is talk to each other, that a makes them nervous because they're, uh, they're stodgy corporate Sears and IBM. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure they could see that there was some naughtiness going on and that really freaked them out. But also because that's really not what they wanted people to be doing, right? They yeah. wanted people to be buying. They wanted you to, I'm sure they had dreams of one day uh, you'd be, download software from them and all the stuff and, and maybe eventually watch movies, blah, blah, blah. Um, as far as I can tell, uh, AOL, their plan originally was, listen, this is great. It's a subscription-based revenue stream, and all we want to do is keep people on there so we can bill them for another cycle, right? And <laughs> right. and so they didn't launch with the the commerce and, and ads and things like that as their main focus. That was only added later. So in a way, again, that's why AOL won and Prodigy and CompuServe didn't is because AOL is just like, we're any any innovation that we can come up with to keep you on for another hour and another hour and another hour, that's great. If later on we can do our own one eight hundred flowers, that's just gravy on top of it. Prodigy was always from day one well, we're going to we're gonna make all this commerce money, and so we want you to come on to to do things uh, and buy things. And so they never institutionally uh, really got what an online service was in the way that people really wanted to use it, you know. When you were a Prodigy
1: user, do you remember if you ever and how By the way, do you know if you activated those things by typing a command or clicking? Do you have a mouse? No, like, there, do was you remember a, there was there was a menu interacting
0: with them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a menu. Uh, okay, so if you uh, you can Google image search this what uh, your average Prodigy page looked like. Yeah. And so again, it was graphics based and very menu based. So, um, yeah, my, maybe my memory is somewhat clouded by later AOL experiences, but yeah. I mean, I think maybe – so there would be a menu of eight items and you hit four and it would take you to four. And then later on with a mouse, you would click the four and stuff. But, yeah, at the bottom of everything, the bottom third of every page that came up, there would be a little ad there. And so then if you clicked on that ad space, boom, you'd go to their 1-800-Flowers page, you know. And did you click on any of them? Well, no. I was a kid, so I wasn't going to buy anything, right? Right. And my other question is, had you – you know what? I, I I do want to research this now that I'm thinking about it. Let's say I did buy something. Right. Um, I'm assuming that they have my credit card on file and they would add that to my billing because there's zero... That That's how they... They had to have done it that way. Because there's, there's zero encryption at that point, I'm assuming. You wouldn't sit right. there and fill out your credit card number in a form. So it must have just been... Okay, you want to order your mom flowers, and by the way, one eight hundred flowers. I'm sorry, we're picking on you because it's the only thing we can think of. But, um, then then that will be added to your bill, you know, whatever the cost of those flowers you select are.
1: One well, one thing I wonder. Uh, there's two things here. So one of them is, this makes a lot of sense if you if you're able to rewind your mind to the late '80s, early '90s. Partly because a thing that had become huge was home shopping television channels. Which we don't even think about anymore, but right. like this, those are they feel like they've existed since you know before time. But... And
0: and it was you're right. It was a big deal in the sense that not only did a lot of people shop via those, mm-hmm. but that was like that was a big industry. Like remember Barry Diller at one point um, goes off and buys QVC. I think it was, yeah, because. Those seemed to be the wave of the future, and those things were just throwing off cash. So there was a certain window in time when, yeah, like shopping on TV and and the home shopping network and all that stuff, seemed to be like the wave of the future. Yeah, and and all
1: these services, or at least my recollection of them, would have like a shopping mall part of them that was is perceived as a destination. I remember seeing an, an episode of Computer Chronicles. That's now up on YouTube and on the Internet Archive and stuff. But they were – they when they talked about virtual reality, <laughs> again, it was like they're trying to find a way to make virtual reality make sense to a normal person. And so one of the things that, that I, I guess developers or the business people or whatever would say was, oh, we'll have a virtual shopping mall. Where you can go in this thing and you can look around on virtual shelves at virtual items and then you can purchase them. Well, and here's or like a, virtually a, look at a car or something. Right. That's well, like here's another human. thought
0: because again, Sears. So yeah, if, if well, yeah, if, yeah. if actually if makes Prodigy, sense. If, you're Sears. if Prodigy yeah. is coming from Sears, then Sears is just thinking logically. This is an extension of what we already do with the Sears catalog, right? Totally, totally. We're just putting the catalog online. people can order easier you don't have to call a 1-800 number or maybe you still did but again it's just they probably thought of it as a logical extension of their catalog business
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's i mean so later in internet world i think the idea of thinking your product is one thing and then later realizing like oh okay it's this totally other thing right right that seems fairly normal now um you know, you hear about startups that start up with one totally right. different and, idea, and then you and, know. And, right, I would
0: say that's even more common now than than sticking with one idea all the way through. <laughs> right, yeah. right.
1: Like Groupon being, what was it like a social activism thing? Yeah, God, I don't remember. Yeah, it was. I'm pretty sure it was uh, an activism organizer. Well, or the
0: the more yeah. classic one would be, uh, Twitter grew out of a podcasting startup. So, yes. Yes.
1: Right. Um, so. Anyway, I I think that that, the the ability of a company to build this crazy infrastructure, because that's the other thing that was, it's hard to imagine now, I think, the complexity of going in and making all these regional telephone exchange things that would let you connect users to your service. That was a big spendy proposition Um, to build a whole thing and then maybe realize later like, oh, gee whiz, we're really not making money on the things we thought we were going to make money on. And therefore, we might have to change our entire business model. Um, Initially, for instance, like with Prodigy, I guess probably realizing, oh, these ads maybe don't bring in all the money, but the hourly service probably does. That's one thing. And then I I have a big question there, which I don't know if it's knowable, but I really wonder how much they made from the ads. Like, What was kind of the split between ad-based revenue or people paying them for placement well, in those ads. Are, are you asking yeah. about Prodigy or AOL? Well, I'm curious in general about both, but I guess AOL matters more in the larger yeah, well, scale of the internet. Yeah, well, okay,
0: the bottom line is is that Prodigy, I believe, might have lost over a billion dollars over the course of its of its lifetime. It was always basically a, a, a money hole for mm-hmm. uh, Sears and IBM. Um. So I don't think that they ever got those to pay. With AOL, it's an enti- it's a different story. Again, so AOL lost a-, a ton of money early on in its life and it it basically the-, the early story of AOL is a series of someone else comes in with you know, a huge investment round that that buys it another year and mm-hmm. then buys it another year and and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. What happened with AOL? Again, remember they just were keeping people online as much as possible and most of their money is get is, is dinging you for those hourly fees. They did this complete switch that happened serendipitously for them because once they, once they became the winner and once they got scale and once they were approaching 5 million people, 10 million people, I think at their peak, they, they, they were between 20 and 25 million people at the very peak of AOL. Um, that's the exact time that the pressure from l- local ISPs which mm-hmm. which would give you unlimited you, you pay us20 dollars a month you, you get on the internet unlimited. So they had to compete with that. so they switched to the to the unlimited uh, stay on AOL as long as you want with you know the the, the famous uh, problems they had with that because their their infrastructure couldn't handle it. but that's the exact moment that then boom they switched to this other, Model, where now AOL has the ads. Now AOL can negotiate. And again, it's serendipitous because it's the exact time when they can do this. They can go to Amazon because Amazon now exists, and they can say, "You got to pay us ten million dollars a year to be the official book vendor on AOL." Right. And they do this for everybody for every niche. But they're also so that it it, it worked out perfectly for them because right at the moment that they got the scale to have enough of an audience to make that work, then they're the only game in town because then you've got 10 million Americans that are getting on AOL every day and they're staying on there for three and four hours a day. So all of a sudden marketers are like, well, (laughs) we need to get in front of these eyeballs. You know, that's always the thing about advertising. They know how much, how many hours, Per day, on average, you listen to the radio, you watch the TV. They want to be where those minutes are, where those eyeballs are, and so, at the exact time that AOL has to abandon this model of charging per hour, it worked out perfectly for them because now they have the scale that they can start charging all these people. And it wasn't just charging, you know, uh, merchants and advertisers. It's also now AOL is so big that, whereas. In the early 90s, they would go to Time, Inc. and say, we'll pay you $3 million a year to put your Time magazine content. <laughs> well, by 1996, right. 90, 1997, it's completely reversed. Uh, the content providers are paying AOL and paying them th- through the teeth to, all right, who wants to be the AOL sports channel? Is it you, CBS? Uh, is it you, ESPN? You know. So then, yeah, that's the second half of AOL's life in the 90s they're still getting those monthly subscription fees, but they're also making all this money from content fees. And yeah, they're starting to make money through commerce. And there's some quote, I think I might've had it in the chapter or, or somewhere where someone says that that's what scared the hell out of all of media about AOL in the mid to late nineties was that they had three distinct and robust revenue streams. You know, so if you're, Right. if your time right. you've only got one you've got the subscription and maybe two because then you've got the ads but you don't have the third like so the fact that, that AOL had this mammoth three legged table of revenue that it could stand on it was, it was blowing people's minds and it was scaring the hell out of them and I also recall so this is maybe post merger
1: when was the AOL Time Warner merger? 2000 Okay. so this was right post merger maybe by a year or so so I had moved to Portland, and a friend of mine, who is now uh, a very successful author, uh, was my roommate, and he needed work. And I don't know how he got this job, but he was writing for AOL, for something they called, I think, Digital Cities. Uh-huh. You could probably look this up. Yeah, but yeah. He, his job was to make local content, right. Portland-related content. It that was one be, of, yeah, yeah,
0: Every again, that's another one of those things that everyone's always trying to crack. If we can just... Right. If <laughs> the we local could, problem. Right, the local news slash community. Pla- yeah, right, right. So that yeah. was AOL's version of that, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that was, I mean, I feel like a lot of online services have this moment where they, you know, uh, gosh, what was it called? I For a while, I had a similar gig um, five years ago where it was like restaurant reviews, you know, and you would effectively look around and try to find, um, like, I don't want to name the actual employer, but you would look at other restaurant review sites and maybe if you had some knowledge of a restaurant you may have gone to because you happened to live in the place. Right. Suddenly, top barbecue spots. Um, that's sort of problematic. But in Randy's case, he, this is my friend who got this job, he, um, like, he was paid by the item and it was very low. I think it was like 20 bucks or 30 bucks or something to write a very short, Thing about an event that was coming up, or a location review, or anything, and so he would spend his days at home on an iMac, and sometimes, you know, getting in his car and driving around and finding stuff. Um, oh, and eventually he found a way to sell photographs to them, which was, I think, way more lucrative than actually the written content. But yeah, he was doing all this local crap, and he would basically get the newspaper and sit there and read the newspaper and be like, "Oh, there'll be a clown show on Sunday at the, you know, local whatever." And he would write that up for AOL, hit a button, and they would effectively pay him 20 bucks or something. And so that was something that kind of eked out a living for a while. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that existed as a job, like today, I think people would kill for 20 bucks for reading the newspaper and typing in some stuff, you know? Like blogging has kind of become. Uh, this this force that has taken over a lot of those kinds of jobs right um,
0: well or, or crowdsource stuff because yeah you, you don't need to, to pay someone to go review a restaurant when <clears throat> you can get people to automatically do it for you via, <laughs> via Yelp and Foursquare <laughs> and things like that.
1: right. Anyway I, I think the, the whole that local thing was was probably a later issue they had to deal with, which was sort of like how do we remain relevant in a world where people have the internet like what is unique content you can only get on?
0: Well, yeah, you know, this is a good area to go into to, to wrap it up chronologically. So, yeah, AOL's biggest problem always was, and, and any, AOL, any online service, once the internet and the web specifically, but even things like email, because a lot of people still have AOL accounts because they've never had it. That was their first email address. That's the, still yep. their email address. Yep. But so once, once, now, once you can get an email anywhere from things like HotWired, or uh, hotmail sorry hotmail um and and once the web is around so i'm sure there was a time period when when fishnet migrated off of compuserve and all those people found a home on some website right yeah so i
1: was gone by that point i had left fishnet in like 96 i think i think high school was when i kind of yeah. retreated from it and then I went off to college and said, "I don't have a fish tank anymore, and I'm kind of sick of this." Um, and my recollection was that yes, um, CompuServe went through, and I this is talking out of vague memories from something I wasn't a part of any longer. But CompuServe went through a series of transitions, attempting to kind of redefine itself and become more competitive with AOL specifically, because that was right. The and only AOL, town.
0: AOL eventually purchases them in 1998.
1: Yeah. yeah. And so they, at some point, uh, Fishnet. I remember getting an email or something and that fishnet was now accessible online as another thing. And it was some kind of web-based system. But when I looked at it, the magic was gone for two reasons. And one of them was I just no longer cared as much about that, that interest. And also technologically trying to move something that involved live chat and file downloads and message boards, which was kind of like email, you know, all these things that were very interactive that had a pretty functional user interface, even if it was ugly, um, trying to move that to the web in the 90s and early 2000s was actually a lot slower to use and just ch- like clunky and gross and covered in banner ads. Initially, but yeah. but my point Initially, is... Initially, yeah, and then it, then it sort of came full circle. Because the web became my, much more useful. My
0: point is, is if I was 12 in 1998 and I wanted to do Star Trek role-playing or otherwise... At, in 1998 I would have found it on a web page right um, so the thing is is that like we've described like the online services were able to provide homes for all these niche uh, interests to find each other but the web it replaces all that at some point and and that's that happens for every that's the, the that's the larger overall problem that any of these online services encounter because fundamentally, they wanted to try to compete with the web, and you know there's all sorts of quotes that I can find you where from the time where AOL or ex- executives are assuring people, no, but we'll, the web is, is, is crazy, anarchic. We'll provide you everything the web does, but we'll do it better. We'll do it professionally. But the bottom line is is that, again, that, that doesn't really matter. And so the the problem that the AOLs and the services of the world had even at the height of their success is really you can't really compete with the web. Um, And so all of these things are migrating slowly off of their message boards and off of their content channels and things like that. And they're going onto the web where they're finding natural homes and you can do all these things uh, that you could do on ALA on the web and you can do more because you can make your own stuff. I mean, you know, by 1998, there had to be a million Star Trek web pages on the web, you know? Yeah. Um, so the problem for aol and you know this is what i will get to because i'm not done with aol i'll definitely do a probably a couple full chapters on uh when aol is king in the late 90s uh, and especially the merger but their problem is is yeah what what is its real purpose its real purpose is it's a delivery system for the internet right and so and, and, and that's kind of why they were so successful for so long, is because that was fine for people. Because for a lot of people, AOL was the internet. You know, we got on in, in the late 80s, early 90s. But if you got online for the first time in 1996, 1997, for the first time in your life, then AOL is the internet. But yeah. even for people that aren't that sophisticated, eventually even they can see, well, no, it's not. The Internet is the Internet, and AOL is sort of this bridge to it, right? Yeah. And see, I would argue that that, that bridging thing is
1: – I mean, you can argue over what is the ultimate purpose of something, right? But I think for a long time, the main purpose of AOL was just to get people online, right? whatever right. that meant, right? And the, the thing that made it interesting is that the definition of what online meant changed because AOL was changing
0: it, and the world was changing around it. Right. And, and, and they – they were in denial about this in some ways (laughs) and in some ways they kind of tacitly knew that that was the real purpose they were serving. And again, when I, when I get to this chapter, I'm sure I'll have way more details about this sort of thing. But again, in the Jan Brandt interview, towards the end there, she says, you know, everyone always says to me, uh, boy, AOL got wiped out by broadband uh, why didn't you guys ever, uh, just, you know, uh, uh buy a cable company? And she's like, duh, <laughs> like that never occurred to us. Um, yeah, because uh, you know, th- we all know what happened without having to have gone to business school. If you lived through that time period, you just knew that eventually one day your cable company says to you for this monthly fee, you get, uh, a way faster connection to the internet and, uh, yeah, you don't have to go through this middleman. Boom, just the internet. Just turn on your computer, computer, bam, there you go. Yep. And AOL ceased to matter. And, by the way, you know, we should stipulate AOL still exists in a completely different guise now. But, um, yeah. yeah, I thought that was interesting that she said that, because that's always been my question. And I hope to hopefully find some answers around this in the research is you know the biggest mystery about the AOL Time Warner merger to me is did AOL see this freight train coming see their obsolescence and the, the 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 merger was an attempt to just while they could grab as much dry land as they could and then hopefully when the the dial-up business went away which again it hasn't completely gone away um, but that they would they would still be standing because they would have used this this time to to buy something substantial. And as Jan Brandt pointed out, Time Warner gave them a cable company, right you know so I, I can't wait to research. Did they try because the only other thing they could have tried is tried to go to Comcast, try to go to Adelphia, Cable vision, all these c- cable companies at the time and, and and try to say, well, just brand your brand your, Broadband service as AOL. I'm sure they must have, right? And I'm sure <laughs> it's probable that that the cable company said, "Well, screw off. Why, why do we need to yeah. do this?" You
1: know. Well, one thing I wonder honestly is just from where I sat in those days, like those sort of early 2000s, um, very early. I think that the DSL providers were a big deal, and that may have been part of the problem mm-hmm. in that the tension between DSL and cable. Um, I don't know if the cable people really got on board. Maybe it was a West Coast thing, uh, but where I lived, DSL was the way to go for four or five years, and then the cable companies kind of got organized and said, "Oh, hey guys, here yeah. we are," um, and figured out their upstream problem. No,
0: mine yeah. was a direct jump from AOL to. It, it was it was when I uh, when I moved up north for the first time uh, in yep. two thousand. So as late as '99, I'm still an AOL dial-up guy. And then when I got my first adult apartment, yep. and I moved up to Michigan, uh, the, the first thing I did was 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 get uh, I, was it Comcast? I don't I don't know if it was Comcast at that point, but whatever. Yeah. So broadband, and then because <clears throat> I can remember evangelizing to people like, no, listen, <laughs> st- stop stop with this AOL, please just get broadband. And yeah. people are like I'm fine with it. I really, but then you know, one yeah. by one, as soon as people had it, they're like, "Oh yeah, 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 right, right, right. yeah,
1: yeah." It was it was a really interesting uh, shift, and then the shift to Wi-Fi. Like there was this golden age yeah. of Wi-Fi stealing, which I guess is probably still going on. But
0: yeah, even oh, as wow. late as 2004, uh, I was living in New York for the first time, and um, uh, <laughs> yeah. you, I didn't have I didn't have a cable um, for for. Uh, for internet access for a couple years because if you lived in a building in manhattan there would be now there wouldn't be the 30 that you would see today but there would be six wi-fi networks that you would see and they'd all be unprotected
1: (laughs) yeah 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 i remember going on business trips and being in new york and in dc and seeing like the hotel's wi-fi would be locked down and crappy but there would be five other ones that were open and fast and stronger yeah and you just hop on uh seemed fine at the time i guess yeah.
0: well we'll be getting to that eventually there's there's plenty of things yeah. in be- I, I have to do the whole dot-com bus before i get to all that i have to do the aol no the microsoft antitrust trial but one question well, one question i have about you
1: is when when does the project end is it just everything from
0: netscape to now or um i my plan right now is to end with uh the ipad launch Okay. Uh, because yeah. that'll still allow me to cover, you know, the smartphone revolution, the Android versus iOS thing. Um, but that's the plan right now. Um, but then I can foresee keeping the interviews going as a thing where, you know, because it's going to be a couple years before I even get to, to the iPad. So by that point, you know... I'll be in inter- my interviews will be with people that have done more recently vintage stuff. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, I, do I, do. I do. so yeah. that maybe by that point, even if I get to the iPad, I'll still be wanting to do interviews, you know, with, uh, stuff that's more contemporary. Like if I were there now, maybe I'd try to get the Snapchat guys. If I were there now, mm-hmm. uh, what's, what's that new, um, uh, social networking site. Uh, oh, lo. Yeah. lo. So like that would be a thing where I'd be like all right, I'd like to talk to the LO people about their what they're doing right now and why they founded this and what what you know. So I can see it continuing as something that um that would be a little more contemporaneous but still with the concept of how you fit into this great chain of stories and things like that. Yeah.
1: I think it'll be hard to figure out the epic ender. I mean for me I would I would guess it might be I would probably pick an earlier time in the iPad launch because I feel like dealing with the whole smartphone
0: revolution. Is oh no! The I next no book. I no I definitely want to still deal with that. Well, I don't know what constitutes a book. I don't know because I might even, I might even stop and do book one up through the dot com bust and then book two web two point gotcha. You see, but I'm yeah, so yeah. I'm so excited to cover the like smart Twitter and stuff. Yeah, the smartphone Twitter. <laughs> All that stuff that that I wouldn't want to stop there, no way. By yeah. the way, um, before we before we wrap up and do plugs, you had brought up uh, the first time we did this, you wanted to know about the um, the convention that I use of of organizing things into chapters and things like that. Yeah. Um, what's your question about that? Because that's been brought up to me by a bunch of people recently, and I and I wanted to I wanted to poke around on that just for a second. Well, okay. So when I look at the podcast in
1: my you know podcast app on my phone i see this list of episodes and they're titled and i see the titles and the titles are like chapter x comma you know interview one or supplemental two or what have you um so i understand the structure especially when you're just reading the book right that makes pure sense right chapter one part one chapter one part two um the thing that's interesting is i sometimes lose track of what does chapter one yeah. equal and what does chapter two equal because i mean it, it is visually a nice shorthand like like the number one two and three is shorter right. than saying you know well Netscape
0: this is and, exactly uh, this is exactly what a couple people have brought up to me recently uh, to the point where you know some of the recent reviews on itunes are like listen i don't give an s about your eventual book <laughs> just give me the next episode you know so i'm th- that's yeah, why i'm bringing this, yeah. this up i'm kind of opening it up um if if anyone listening has any thoughts on that do you do the does the chapter convention drive you crazy <laughs> now let me give you my rationale behind it obviously it comes out of initially i was going to do this as a book and it just was more fun to do it as a podcast it's more immediate it makes it way easier to get the interviews and things like that but i'm still thinking of it as this history project so my rationale for it is if you discover this project tomorrow, then via the website and via the chronology of the chapters, you it ties it together in a way. I know that if you're someone that is a subscriber, and God bless you for subscribing and listening every week, you don't care if that interview I did last week is assigned to Chapter 5 or Chapter 3 or what have you. Just, but if you're someone that's new to it, I still would argue that it's valuable that they're grouped together in a way, because, you know, for example, if I, if I end up getting somebody from Yahoo to talk to me, um, it's way out of chronology. um, And so I want it to be organized for somebody that, you know, okay, I want to, I want someone that is coming to this project fresh that is not familiar with the history at all to be able to be like, all right, this is all the, this is the story of Yahoo. And this is all the surrounding Interviews and materials about Yahoo. Um, So I don't know. Again, I'm open to any criticism that anyone wants to tweet at me about it. Um, Any thoughts that you might have. uh, My email address is on the website. Um, But that's my argument for it. Um, What do you think? For me, I think that you're just
1: hitting the limitation of a single list, like this is just the, yeah. the format of you know what RSS does when you have a non categorizable list. So I know it
0: looks terrible on your on your smartphone screen. Well, it's not, I mean, I guess I'll put it this way. I don't think
1: it's terrible. I just think it's um, the thing that the first time it confused me was when a different chapter popped up and then we went back to a previous chapter. So it was like, yeah. okay, we'd gone through chapter one and chapter two, and again, then suddenly that, there was some one stuff. But that's my argument for why I do include it because yeah, it, yeah, no, it makes it makes sense. Yeah. To me, I and also it's it's functional for me, and I this probably doesn't apply to any of the listeners, but like when I when you say, Let's discuss chapter three, right, I just say, Okay, well I'm gonna look at all the chapter yeah, three episodes yeah, and that's yeah. very easy to do. I yeah. don't have to like go to the website and download the sub I'm, feed. I'm yeah. throwing
0: it out there for people to, to give me their feedback on it. I certainly yeah. understand that if you're if you're a fan and all you want is a new episode, the conventions of the chapters and organizing it that way might not mean that much to you. I get that. If it doesn't mean that much to you, then fricking don't worry about it. (laughs) But I, I I (laughs) still, I, I still maintain that the purpose that it serves is just organizing it in a way that, um, you know, so I'm going to do a chapter on internet porn. And then after that is finally my, my big chapter on, on Amazon. So, the Amazon one will probably be at least two episodes. So a part one and a part two, and then hopefully I can get some great interviews with that. And so again, as a history project, if someone comes to it and is like, you know what I really want to learn about is Amazon and how that got started to organize it in that way, helps it all group together. And again, I'm sure most of the people listening haven't gone to the website, but that's what the website is. there functioning for, I don't know. Um, that's my argument. I'm happy to hear any other ideas that people might have about that.
1: Yeah, I'm curious what people think about that and also what people think about this format of episode. This is, you know, mm-hmm. two dudes talking about the internet in a somewhat organized way. We have notes now.
0: Yeah, but, but I I, I, I like this. Yeah, it, let's 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 address that also. I did get some I, I got some positive feedback about our first stab at this, uh, but a lot of negative feedback and I think both you and I agree that we maybe didn't do the best <laughs> for the first time. I think that's fair. Yeah, sure. But I do like, I do like what we're doing in the sense that it's, it is sort it, it is analysis in a way, but in a really, really loose way. And I, I, I just like it as a counterbalance to where, you know, the interviews are, and then you did this and then you did that. And and the chapter yeah. episodes are um, all right. This led to that. that led to that. And so I kind of, I kind of like this as a counterbalance where in a really really loose way we're we're poking around the edges and not in any sort of we're in a symposium we're just poking around the edges at you know yeah where would i have the 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 time to to get into the weird fanboy uh, i'm on team prodigy or you're on team CompuServe, you know so yeah i think
1: yeah I, or what, what did you click to get the banner to come up i mean I, I think there's value in that stuff. And of course it's packaged in a way that's longer mm-hmm. than just,
0: you know, feature by feature, by feature. Right, but right. Um,
1: yeah. Well, I think we're open to feedback. Yep.
0: Um, so we're at about two hours ish right now. So this is a good time for, as they say on, uh, on, on comedy, bang, bang, they have a plugs theme song. I, I don't want to do that, but time for <laughs> time for plugs.
1: Okay, some plugs. Uh, The magazine, which is shutting down regular production, is publishing a year two book. It's currently on Kickstarter. It is the magazine, the book, year two. Um, I think I'm, I have two stories in it, and it's a print book. It's very beautiful. If you've never read the magazine, um, it is a mixture of general interest things, and I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if you listen to this, to this point, you will be very interested by what is in this book. And it's relatively cheap. And if we fund the thing, the there will be an ebook that you can get for free, and you can get the year one ebook, which I also have two stories in. Uh, one of them is about Tetris, and one of them is about uh, Star Trek uh, in the park, live live action Star Trek. Oh wow! Right. So I would go fund that. That does you know benefit me, as well as the magazine and lots of other writers. Uh, you can also find me on the web at chrisiggins.com or at chrisiggins on Twitter. Uh, feel free to send me all kinds of thoughts about how I swallow a lot and say um and yeah and like and uh happy to hear from you guys
0: I uh I want to do a little uh pre-promotion I'm, I'm going on Hollywood here but um <laughs> well at the end of this month I ha- I'm gonna at the end of this month uh, October 27th is the 20th anniversary of the launch of uh Hotwired which we've been discussing recently and 20th mm-hmm. anniversary of the first banner ads which we have also touched on <clears throat> on several different episodes, but I'm putting together a special episode for that Monday um, with stringing together five or six different interviews, some that you've heard, uh, several that you've not heard with a um, bunch of com- comments and content that you haven't heard. Uh, it'll be an oral history of those first banner ads, um, and I put a lot of work into it. I'm, I'm really proud of it, so um, uh, look for that later this month. And then I just wanted to plug a a podcast that i'm a fan of that uh chris is a fan of too i know um alex bloomberg who you would know from uh is it marketplace or planet money it's planet money planet money um uh well and this american life and this american life right right right. everything if you listen to npr you know that name um he has a a new uh podcast up called startup I think the name is, is it Startup Podcast and iTunes. I don't know. I do know. I think
1: it's yeah. It's Startup Podcast is the actual. I do point.
0: know that the website is here Startup H E A R startup.com. Um, actually, let me hit let me hit the subscribe button in iTunes. It comes up as Startup Podcast. Or I'm sure yeah. if you punched Alex Bloomberg into iTunes, it would get you there too. Anyway, he is starting a company. Uh, he is. He's quit his job. He's raising money to start a podcasting network, and he's documenting the actual process of starting this company, so uh, getting founders together, raising money, uh, hiring the team, all this great stuff, um, and I find it very fascinating. I guess Chris and I have discussed, I find it <laughs> maddening at times, <laughs> but it, it's also it's fantastic. And um, I think that listeners of this uh, podcast would be big fans of that podcast as well.
1: Yeah, it, it is emotional. It is, um, it'll make you yell at the TV a little bit uh, for the podcast player. And it's a it's a hell of a ride. Uh, so I am thoroughly enjoying that thing. I've, I've listened to each of the episodes twice. Like I'll get to the very end realize I'm 30 seconds away and just rewind all the way back.
0: It's terrific. Well, excellent, Chris. Until next time. All right. Thanks, Brian. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review, because the weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com. Get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.